This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With us on the line right now, Melanie Schroeder. Now, Melanie, interesting woman. She's a, re- a registered professional counselor and a chartered professional accountant. So kind of both sides of the brain. Is that right, Melanie? That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a partner at KH Burnaby Chartered Professional Accountants. Um, the, we're we're going to hear uh, uh, lots from Melanie, and we're going to hear in her words a real can-do attitude about these issues that we're going to cover. Uh, she has over 15 years of experience in public practice, so uh, we're going to hear from Melanie in terms of her uh, philosophy about life when we talk about these very... Uh, big issues and significant ones that are really dollars and cents kinds of issues. But of course, there's so much emotion and so much uh, energy put into these things as people, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, take them on. Uh, this one, this segment is all about tax implications when a relationship ends. Melanie, so glad you could join us. I'm really happy to be here. It's, you know, you really hit the nail on the head when you talk about these issues. Uh, so many people, there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of energy around a relationship ending. I mean, whether it's something you've chosen to do in a divorce, which you don't always choose, but sometimes you are making that choice, but that doesn't make the grief any less sometimes. Um, And, you know, we don't always want to deal with the the tax or the money side of things, but it has to be done, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's really both some like two extremes, right? You're talking about something very emotional and heartfelt and all kinds of feelings attached to it. And yet Mm -hmm. we're talking about taxes, like, oh, man, (laughs) putting those two together, right? So let's, (laughs) yeah, so let's get started. What are some of the ways relationships can end that will have tax implications? Well, we talked about, you know, you talked about them both. Um, both divorce and death can have tax implications. Um, and separation, you know, people sometimes don't realize that separating for a period of time can have tax implications, yep. especially when you start making payments back and forth between spouses. I know you've got lots of experience. Can you talk about folks that have, or you know, their experiences as they've gone through this kind of situation? It must be very difficult. It is very difficult. I mean, it's quite often you start having, I mean, people when they're ending a relationship, um, let's talk about divorce, for example, or separation. You know, they're ending a relationship. They're not ending it because they're best friends, typically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're ending it because they're they're having a lot of conflict. They're no longer getting along. Um, Sometimes there's children involved, so that adds an extra layer. And you know, they really have to now try to figure out how are they going to potentially separate assets, separate debts, uh, what are they going to do if, um, for example, one spouse was supporting the other one, and what's that going to look like going forward? And then you add in the emotional layer to that, and you really can create uh, <clears throat> quite an explosive situation, really. 
And, and Melanie, just wondering about the division of, of assets and debts. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things people should, should keep in mind? Because, you know, from my point of view as a trustee, th- this can be a minefield if, you know, you're giving preferential payments to one creditor or not the other. Uh, what are some, some good coaching for folks to, to keep in mind, even if they don't need a trustee, but they're going through one of these, these types of events, like a divorce, for example? Well, when you talk about debt, I mean, I think something that is really important for people to consider is that, you know, when you are married, you're you're responsible for your spouse's debts, regardless, right? And and splitting up doesn't make you not responsible for them. So you really need to consider that that if you have something like a mortgage, just because you split up doesn't mean your name is no longer like if you were a joint. Um, signer on the mortgage, you're still responsible for it. Right. So you have to start taking those things into consideration or now like you're splitting assets, you're splitting debts, you have to look at, are you going to be able to afford to make payments on your debt afterwards? What's your income going to be like? So you really have to sit down and start to look at your budget. Right. You know, are you going to be able to afford your car payments, your house payments, your rent payments if you don't own a house? What were your debts like? Did you have credit cards? And some people don't, you know, one spouse was the person that was taking care of the money. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times you get that where you have, you know, one spouse that's looking at the, you know, taking care of all of the money issues. And the other one is like, I just never even took care of that. What kind of advice do you give couples that are in that position, <laughs> Melanie? Uh, that are in the position of, of one person has been taking care of everything. Yeah, they're going through a divorce and there's been a real division of uh, responsibilities for it. And there's the the one person that hasn't taken that responsibility on, let's say they're doing, you know, looking after another mm-hmm. piece of it. What's, what's the kind of support that you can give them? Well, they typically have to, you know, very, be very gentle with themselves, first of all, and very kind, because a lot of times there's a lot of shame wrapped up in that, that they've, uh, a lot of times it's the the woman as well, you know, and there can be a lot of shame along with the idea that they've allowed themselves to get in the position where they don't know anything about finances. Mm-hmm. And they've allowed themselves to be in this position of now, you know, they can't take care of themselves and they don't know anything about finances. So, Typically, my advice is to be gentle and just to learn mm-hmm. and to to not feel badly about it. it. It is what it is, you know, like that's that's how it was and it's okay and it's what served your purposes and you were part of a partnership where that was the agreement and there's nothing wrong with that. And now it's just changed. And Melanie, I'm wondering from, you know, even just the, the nuts and, and bolts of filing tax returns. So mm-hmm. if you've been married for a number of years, you were filing jointly, and now you've got to tar- start filing separately. What's the, the implications of that, of starting to file separate as, as opposed to joint? Is it, you know, worse off, more punitive, you wouldn't get the same type of credits? You know, how can someone kind of assess what the impact would be? Yeah, and in, in Canada, we don't, it, it's a little different than in, in the U.S. where we you know, we file as married or single, but we file our own tax returns. So we don't file, it's a little bit of a different language. We don't um, file joint. Yeah, joint's or, the wrong words. Yeah, just, yeah as so, married as opposed to single, yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah, married as opposed to single. But, you know, there definitely are different tax credits. So if you had someone who wasn't earning income, definitely the spouse who was the higher earner will lose those tax credits. So they'll start to pay some more tax. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but if you had two people who were earning, you know, earning an, a reasonable income, let's say over, you know, thirty to forty thousand dollars of income, their tax returns would remain largely unchanged. Um, something that's important in terms of tax, if you do have one spouse who was dependent on the other and they start to make support payments, it's really important to get a separation agreement in place right away because uh, support payments are only d- to a spouse are only deductible uh, based on certain criteria. And one mm-hmm. of those is having an agreement in place that's um, gone through the court. Right. And, and I, gone through the proper channels, right? So, yeah. um, and that's a good way of still splitting the the income and taking advantage of the the basic tax credits of the lower income spouse. Yeah, and I've definitely seen the impact of that, Melanie. I've had people mm-hmm. in my office that have said, "Yeah, I made all these support payments, but CRA disallowed them, and now I've that's got a right. debt." And you know, knowing what I know now, I could say, "Well, you know, did you have a court ordered super, you know, uh, separation agreement that specified right. the, these payments? If so, you're probably okay. If not, your CRA is going to win here." Yeah, that's right. And sometimes you can go back and do it retroactively and, you know, get this great big deduction. But, you know, the problem is where there's a lot of animosity and people take, you know, two or three years to come out with these agreements, then you're losing out on these credits. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really important for people to just to try to do their best and move forward without letting their, you know, letting their emotions get too much the better of them if they can, especially where children are involved. It sounds to me because, and I'm, you know, I'm the I'm the rookie here, Melanie, in terms of knowing how to do things well when it comes to this kind of a situation, especially with tax implications mm-hmm. involved. It sounds like the one of the best pieces of advice is to get professional help, to get somebody like yourself who who's an accountant who could help me sort of maneuver my way through uh, these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. And an accountant, and I would say, uh, you know, you want to speak with a lawyer and you want to speak with an accountant and maybe even a counselor, there's a really great thing out there now called collaborative divorce. And they you typically have a team. And because having the emotional support is really, is really important as well. Like we've just been talking about, this is a hugely emotional time, you know, and you need someone to vent to. Like it's just, you need the emotional support. There's no doubt about it. You're going to get angry with your spouse. You're going to get angry because they're looking after their best interests, and you need to look after yours. And at the same time, dealing with real hard and fast numbers, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, money owed, money that needs to be paid. So it's, again, it's like two extremes at the same time, but you've got to be able to take those head on. That's right, yeah. And what about planning or avoiding some of this stuff? What's the best way to, what's a step to take towards that? Well, I probably counseling <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and open communication. Um, you know, I think um, you know, really just talking about things with your spouse, and and also just making sure that you're um, always aware, you know, of of where you're at and what your responsibilities are. You know, because a lot of these issues can come up because you're not self aware. What about uh, resources that you think we should be we should know about and be aware of? 
Um, there's some great resources actually on the Canada.ca website um, around deductions that are allowable for support payments. And also, the other one that's really worth mentioning is when you transfer assets back and forth when you split up, because there can be capital gains issues, capital gain tax. Um, but they're really well explained on the website. And again, you know, just make sure that you speak to an accountant, even if you just get a couple of hours of advice. And is there some things that I could do to to have in place uh, before I get to this situation where, you know, like in sort of not pre-planning for a divorce, I don't want to imply that. (laughs) I'm like, hmm. (laughs) Yeah, bad question. I know. I'm sorry. But in terms of just being able to look after yourself, because sometimes we get lulled into letting somebody else look after us, Mm -hmm. men or women, uh, but things that we can do to make sure that we are looked after well. Yeah, I mean, I think if you start looking at um, maybe having agreements before you get married, and again, just having those conversations with your spouse on an ongoing basis and having the agreements about who's taking care of what and um, making sure that you know what's going on in your marriage financially, you know, really being aware what are you agreeing to, um, what are you signing your name to? You and know, when it comes to joint debts. Yeah, and not sticking your head in the sand and saying mm-hmm. somebody else will look after this. That's right. We've yeah. been talking with Melanie Schroeder. Uh, her website, melanieschroeder.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents along with, uh, I'm Elaine Scullin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start. Call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's called Seven Money Matters You Should Know. So facts you might not have known, but you definitely should. So pay attention. Take some notes, I'm thinking. Right, Blair? That's absolutely. It's going to be an action-packed <laughs> 10 minutes or so here with seven really important things. And this sort of is a reflection of one of the lines that uh, Sands & Associates uses, and you use, not a, not a ton, but you have used it for sure, is knowing is not owing. So that's what we're going to explain, basically, is, is why that idea is so important. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to separate the fact from the fiction, give you, you know, some real concrete facts that you can rely on so you can make good decisions about your debt. And once you know the facts, typically it's much easier to get out of debt than if you're just flailing about and you don't know what's available to you. So that's why we say knowing is not owing. The first step is getting the knowledge. Okay, so the first piece is protected assets. What about our protected assets we should pay attention to? I think the takeaway here is that most people have a lot more... Um, you know, have a lot less of a risk than they than they think they do in terms of of losing assets. They've got a lot more protection enshrined in legislation. They're just not aware of it. So if you owe somebody money, and a collection agent is never going to tell you this, they might tell you, you know, we're going to be at your door tomorrow. We're going to be carting out your furniture. Uh, we're going to be taking your RRSPs. We're going to be seizing your wages. Uh, most people are experiencing collection calls. That's the stress that puts them over the top. Is really worried about someone coming to enforce and start to you know really impact their lives from wages or assets. Uh, but what people need to understand 
understand is every province in Canada, and BC is, is not, not unique in this situation, ha- provides a level of exemption. So even if you are sued for a payment of your debt or if you have to file for bankruptcy, most people actually don't have any assets that they would have to lose. So what that means is if you have household goods, furniture, there's an exemption in BC law that no one is ever going to show up your, at your door and start taking your furniture away. Uh, if you have a vehicle, exemption in BC law says that if a vehicle is worth less than $5,000, it can never be seized from you. Um, home equity, for example, just because you file for bankruptcy doesn't mean you automatically lose your house. There's an exemption amount for equity, so it's not a foregone conclusion. Filing for bankruptcy means that you won't be able to keep your house. What's hugely important is RRSPs. So um, I know we mentioned this a lot, but it is important. You can never be forced to cash in your RRSPs to pay debts. So if someone is sitting at home thinking, oh my God, my furniture is at risk, you know, even my tools of the trade, my vehicle, none of that is actually going to happen. And even if you file for bankruptcy, you would keep those assets. So if you're worried about losing an asset because of a debt, speak to a trustee. We can explain to you provincial exemptions. And these exist even if you don't file a bankruptcy, if you don't hire somebody to protect you. You just need to be aware that what the collector is telling you is essentially an empty threat. I know that credit history and credit reports and all that is, is can be very, very important to some folks. Um, let's talk a little bit about the really good facts about that and what people need to be aware of. Well, I think that the biggest takeaway with credit history is to understand that, you know, your credit report, your credit score, it's just at a period of time and it's something that is going to change over time. So, you know, even people that go from filing a bankruptcy, which is one of the worst things you can do to your credit, they can rebuild, they can turn their financial life around as little as two to three years after that bankruptcy is finished and have a great credit rating, maybe even better than they had before they started. So I think a lot of people get really worried that, oh my God, it's a life sentence if I restructure my debt. I'm never going to get credit again. Uh, And the fact is, everything does clear off your credit report. The longest something negative is going to stay is typically six years. and That includes a bankruptcy. But most people, um, they're going to be able to rebuild their credit as soon as two to three years after they've done a formal proceeding. So the wrong decision is try to to preserve perfect credit for your entire life, pay tons of interest and never save any money. The right decision often is to understand your credit rating can ebb and flow. And sometimes it's, it's a good decision to allow your credit rating to take a hit so that you can get out of debt. That's interesting. Hey, not everybody would jump on that idea in a hurry, would they? That's why it's so important to talk to somebody like you who can explain that part of it. It's so important. So can we well, talk and, about... And, yeah, and again, the, yeah. the bank validates you again and again. Say, oh, you got great credit. You know, even the credit yeah. rating, it sounds like something that you want to have. It just means that you're making a lot of money for the banks. You're a profitable customer. You got a high credit rating. Yeah, that's such a good perspective to have on it. So is it? can we talk about some debt-specific money matters that you that you wanted to mention today? I would love to. Great. Let's co-sign debts. Mm-hmm. So this one, that the takeaway here is to understand if you co-sign a debt, you really need to be careful. And most of the time, it's not a wise decision to co-sign a debt for somebody else uh, because you remove that person's ability to actually deal with the debt without impacting somebody else. So if you co-sign somebody else's debt, you need to understand it's not a limited amount of a co-sign. It's not a 50-50 or an 80-20 liability. It's a joint and several liability. So you might be co-signing a $10,000 credit card uh, debt, for example, to get to let the person to get a credit card. And the person might say to you, okay, I know if things go bad, you know, the worst case, I'll only ever hold you accountable for 50-50. 
But the fact is, the bank has both names on that account, and if the original borrower doesn't pay, you can be held liable up to 100% of the balance outstanding, regardless of whatever side agreement you might have made with the borrower. So you need to be really careful, um, often even getting a supplementary card on a credit card account. That could result in you being liable for the balance. So you need to be careful if you're getting a supplementary card on a card that has a significant balance. Are you implicitly co-signing that amount? Um, and really think twice before you co-sign. It's, in my experience, it's typically just removed somebody's ability to deal with their debts. It hasn't helped with solving a situation. Let's stay with credit cards for a second here and add on this one particular point that we've talked about before about credit cards and whatever commitments come along with a marriage or common law spouse yeah. status, legally taking on your spouse or common law's partner's debts is, the, and the answer is, is so interesting to me. What is it? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is not what you think. Most people think you marry yeah. somebody, you marry their debts, whatever their credit card debts are, they're now your collective credit card debts. That's absolutely not the case. So marrying somebody does not suddenly make a debt joint. It doesn't give uh, the bank the ability to collect from a husband or wife who doesn't owe the money. So just knowing that fact can completely change the decisions a couple might make for their overall financial health. And, you know, if one partner has assets and one has a lot of debt, the wrong answer is usually to transfer all the assets to the other person with debt. And then the couple has nothing, no debt, no assets. The right answer is for one part of the couple to preserve their assets, let the other me member of the couple deal with their debts, and the couple is so much better off in the end. This makes so much sense, but who knew? Because, it, I, I, I mean, is that the way it used to be done years ago, that if you married somebody, you married their debts, or is that one of those sort of old folk, folklore pieces that we picked up on? It's all old folklore, but who has a vested wow. interest in, in correcting that misconception? Nobody <laughs> except for a trustee, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And the statute of limitations on debt, always an interesting topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this one is great. And just, you know, in a nutshell here, it's to understand if you owe somebody money, sometimes the worst thing you can do is just continue to make small payments, you know, for the rest of your life there. If you know you're not going to be able to pay the debt off in full, there is a statute of limitations and it's only two years. So from when you stop making payments on a debt, if someone has not commenced legal action against you within two years, they lose the right to ever force you to pay that debt. They could never take you to court and start to seize assets or wages. So it's not a strategy for somebody early in their working life, you know, wants to build solid credit and things like that. But for someone who might be 75 years old, who has a bunch of debt that they can't pay, they could consider filing a bankruptcy, or they might just say, you know, unless these guys want to take me to court, um, I'm just not going to pay. And after two years, I know they can't ever take me to court and I move on with my life. So there is a two-year statute of limitations on all debts, Do you uh, sorry, want to all move debts on? excluding government debt. <laughs> excluding government debts. That's, that's the most important, or not the most important piece, but an important piece, right? Because you sometimes think everything's included, but in fact, it's not in that one. Mm -hmm, and that's right. that sort of leads to the next one. Uh, not all debts are created equal. Yeah, and that's the point there. The government is on a different playing field um, than all other creditors. So where other creditors have the two-year statute of limitations and they need to sue you before they can really hurt you by taking assets or income, government has to do none of that. Their debt doesn't expire and they can start to seize assets or income with very little notice to you. So be very careful if there's government debt. You can still deal with it in a bankruptcy or a proposal, which a lot of people don't know about. Uh, but if you don't deal with it, you can expect escalating collection activities. So the best solution, go see Blair Manton at Sands & Associates, get an appointment, talk about your situation. It's nice and easy to do. Sands-trustee.com is the website. 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Sophie Salcedo on the line with us. She's a wealth advisor at Van City with 20 years of experience providing financial advice. She loves what she does. And you're going to hear that as we talk about this very, very important topic, children and money. Uh, I know that I make judgments all the time when I see kids with their money or I see their parents and go, how are they ever going to teach their kids how to deal with money if the parents are so bad at it? And uh, so we're going to cover a whole bunch of topics within sort of within that realm with Sophie. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start right off the top. Why do you think it's so important to teach children about money? Well, I just think it's the most important topic that I can talk about. And it's actually for me a real personal cause. So number one reason really is that financial skills and learning about money and how to use it well, it's the foundation for your life. So it's going to set the trend for your financial skills for the rest of your life. And in fact, if most of us think back, many of our, many, if not most of our habits and attitudes about money, where were they formed? They were formed likely in childhood. So it's super important. Absolutely. Boy, oh boy, I can just think of the, my, hear mm-hmm. my dad's voice in the yeah. back of my head, right? Yeah, around the kitchen table, all the exactly. discussions, right? Put that yeah. money aside, make sure you save 10%, all of that stuff. It's not Why what you it, make, it's what you save. I remember my dad saying that again and again. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Why is it so personal for you, Sophie? Well, I think I did get some good money habits. I've I've um, done a lot of good things. I didn't. I was always a saver. I bought my first condo in the early '90s when I was 24 um, with my own money, and so and I know a lot of that came about because I had some lessons early on that maybe weren't the best use of financial skills and money. And for some reason, it just taught me to do the opposite to create my own security. And so a lot of that came. I just built those skills inside me to create that for myself. Wow, excellent. So let's talk about the ways that that parents can start incorporating good financial lessons uh, into parenting and with their kids and how to figure that out. Where do yep. they start? Yeah, so the first, the first lesson, um, I'll give you a couple here for younger children, and then we can go into a couple for teens. Yes. But the very first thing to start with, and I think it was just mentioned in one of our quick little comments here, was talking, tell your financial stories. You need to talk to the children and talk to your spouse and have the children, even within earshot, talking about your financial stories and your histories. So if someone's laid off from work, you must not hide that from the child. It has to be told in a manner that they can handle, but that needs to be discussed. These are the best lessons. So you've got to tell them what you did right or your family did right and what you did wrong, and they're going to learn that way. That's so interesting because it's so counterintuitive, right? We tend to shield uh, right. children, and, and we were shielded as children, I think, or at least I know I mm-hmm. was from anything bad. Yeah, well, but and, that's, and that's the problem, actually, isn't it? Because I've equated it now to looking back to our Depression-era generation, who I loved those guys, those ladies and men who saved so hard and paid their homes off. And why do you think they did it? Why did they save the elastic bands? Because around the table, when they were little, they were told, don't waste anything. Yeah. Dad's out of a job. Mom's, mom has to stay home now. Whatever it was, and they had a lesson young, and it carried them through their life. Yeah, I think you're making a great point, So. Uh, Sorry, pardon me. Uh, you're making, making a great point, um, Sophie, just about how families should talk about money. And I see it, um, you know, definitely with couples where sometimes one member of the couple, and it's quite often the male member, but not always, but they take all of the responsibility, all of the decisions. And the female member or the other spouse, um, you know, if something happens to that person who's made all the decisions, they just don't know where to turn. You know, it can be very, very disorienting. 
Yeah, and so I encourage my clients to make sure both spouses are coming in because I, I've seen it time and time again where one person is left. And, and like you said, the most important thing is who are you going to call? Who's going to be there to help you? I know you've got yeah. a couple for young children that we should I be do. telling. Yeah, go. Yeah, so the next one would be uh, very simple, but just um, bring them with you grocery shopping and have little talks here and there about what's the best price today for this product or why do we pay more? Is the quality better? Is it, is it, not, is it okay to buy the lesser cost product? So that's important. Um, a couple for teens, number one there would probably be about um, getting them to learn how to budget. So if they, you're going to give them an allowance or an amount of money for back-to-school shopping, just stick to that amount and really teach them how they've got to make choices to stick within that limited amount because that's how we all live, isn't it? We all have a limit <laughs> month to month. You have to learn how to live with that. And um, even something simple like um, make them responsible for their cell phone bill. So make them pay that, and, and they're going to maybe have to have a small job to pay that off, but maybe they'll learn the diligence about being being wise about how they spend that money on that bill. Unfortunately, I think, Sophie, they're going to end up being the only kid in their group that's uh, <laughs> having to do that, right? Because that's just not the norm today. It's not. And so as a parent, I'm a parent too, right? You have to you have to learn to not care about that, don't you? At the end of the day, what I say to myself, because I've been doing this job for 20 years, I've watched a lot of people walk through my door, and my mandate with, with my own child is I don't want her home at 30 in my basement. I really don't. And so <laughs> I, my job is to teach her the skills to get her out there so she can stand her own two feet, hopefully. Obviously, there may be extenuating circumstances, but that's just my overall goal. That's a good goal. The other thing I think of, too, you know, and I mentioned it as we when we started this, is that sometimes the parents aren't so good with money, and so the idea of having to pass along some good ideas or some ad- helpful advice to their kids, yep. they're just dumbstruck, like they don't have a clue where to start. Yeah, and I under- totally understand that. If you don't have anybody around you or just didn't have the opportunity to learn that, then that's where you're coming to see someone like myself to get those skills and get that help. And I would say bring your children in to some of your financial appointments. I've had clients bring their young children into my investment appointments where we're talking about the stocks and the bonds, etc. And I would I would also say there's nothing wrong with bringing in them in for part of the meeting. Maybe you don't want them to know exactly how much money is available in the family, for instance. Right. So just bring them in for half the meeting and then they can go sit in another area of the, and wait for you outside the meeting. But but again, a couple of things are happening there. They're learning your stories. And number two, they're learning to be comfortable coming into our environment. How often have I heard that people are intimidated walking into their bank, their credit union to talk to somebody, and that should not be the way we're here to help you. Yeah, Sophie, I think you're hitting on such a great point there um, because, you know, it breeds familiarity, right? You know, being in that environment and it gives you confidence as well um, because I think a lot of people grow up in a household where it's not polite to talk about money um, and then they sometimes think, okay, well, when I'm dealing with the bank, I need to be very polite, which means I'm not going to advocate for my interests. I'm going to take what's put in front of me. I'm not going to shop around because that's the polite way to do it. And, you know, people take nothing else away here. It's, you know, that time for politeness is gone. You've got to be in the driver's seat of your own financial future. Yeah, you definitely have to know what questions to ask and exactly put yourself, that's a very great point, advocating for yourself and getting the best advice. And that's where you can go to a few, couple of people to get a couple of opinions and advice too. One of the things I was thinking about, Sophie, you're so smart around money and you've been smart around it for a really long time. Um, It's not always the easiest thing to do in terms of adopting a new thought process around Mm -hmm. money, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And the idea of being a good financial role model, um, there's got to be, what, three or four or five things that if you're wanting to change, because I I believe it's never too late to change, that somebody could take this, this new position on and be smarter about it. 
Yeah, and so uh, things I talk about with clients and, and people I meet are what's going to motivate you? I've done so many financial plans for people where I, the outcomes are great. You know, if they follow this, if they follow A, B, C, D, they're going to get to E, but it doesn't happen a lot. And it doesn't happen because they're not motivated to make that change. And so I always tell people, you've got to dig a little deep and find out what is going to motivate you. So, And that's what you've got to put at your forefront. If I do A and I'm diligent about saving this money, it's helping me get to B. And B is where you got to go. So that would be a good thing to take on as a role model for your kids, right? Yep. Yep. Teaching them the, those those tactics too. Yep. And now I understand why you think uh, having your having your teenager pay their own cell phone bill is a good idea. <laughs> it's if you don't teach them, then when are you going to teach them? Mm-hmm. You don't want to be paying the phone bill forever. <laughs> exactly. I hear yeah. you. I hear you yeah. loud and clear. Yeah. What are the most challenging areas that you've found for? Uh, for parents to start to talk to their kids and train their children better in the in financial financial decisions. Well, I think you touched on it slightly. And as parents, we we want to help. We want to pick them up when they fall and, and help them as much as we can and get them that good start. And we've just got to be so careful. We don't go overboard. So if you loan your child, I do this with my own daughter. I'm not afraid to say it. If I loan her some money because we're out and she wants to buy a book or something, it's a, you know, whatever number, number of dollars, I'm really conscious about going home and that day or whenever it is, making sure I ask for that money back. That's a really important lesson, isn't it? We have mm-hmm. to pay them the money back. We borrow most people. You do in the yeah. real world. Yeah, no, exactly. no free money. <laughs> yeah, no free money. And it's just a small habit. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I can put the money where I want. I can put it back into a bank account for her or whatever. But it's just the habit, right? Teaching those habits young, are so it's so much easier when they're young. I remember being very resentful of uh, those kinds of lessons that my father would try to teach me, right? I mean, and, and, and I can yeah. see that as being something that's going to happen today as well, because it seems we bend over backwards to help our kids or to give our kids as much as we possibly can. And, and I think the other side then, let's say instead of that, if you're having difficulty with that, then the other step is to just help them get a job. Now my daughter has um, been cat-sitting, so someone asked me, hey, could you watch our cat for us when we're away? And I said, I took a minute to think, and I thought, well, yeah, I could, but can I just have my daughter? Because she can walk the block now to go up there and do it, so she's been mm-hmm. doing it. So find a job to empower them then, to, to set you free, let's say, <laughs> set the parent free from that a little bit, and get them empowered to get that money in themselves that you can then help them figure out how to budget and put towards things for them. Yeah, and I think empowerment is such is just such a great word to use in this situation because in this day and age we get bombarded with so much stuff that feeling empowered is difficult regardless of how old you are uh, when it comes especially to money things. Well, and it's also about teaching them about the needs versus the wants, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They have to learn to understand you, you shouldn't need or you shouldn't want everything you see advertised or what your friends all have. You've got to, you've got to think for yourself what's the best course of action for you in the long term. And that's hard. I know that's hard to teach them. But just be aware of it so you can try when the little lessons come up. You can reinforce some things that are important. Now, we're just winding up. We've got about a minute left. Resources that you think, uh, after listening to this discussion, where I could go to get more information. Yeah, I'm going to give you um, one website link. I've looked at it myself for quite a lot of time, and I love it because it's just really simple. So it's great, simple ideas, and it's called 360 Degrees of Financial Literacy. And it's just a nice tool. You're going to go in there. You're going to see um, topics for tweens and teens, uh, student debt, all sorts of things. That's a really good one. And I think student debt, thank you for just even mentioning that because that's the next step, right? Yeah. 
for, exactly. for kids today to to know that they've got to get another to get more education, uh, and the cost that's connected with that is enormous. Yeah, we need a plan for that exactly. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Sophie. We've been talking with Sophie Salcedo, who's a wealth advisor at Van City, over twenty years experience providing financial advice. If you'd like more information about Sophie or to try to get a hold of her, easy to do. VanCity.com is the website, and uh, there's just so much good information out there. Thank you so much again, Sophie. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. For information on any of the services we've talked about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this is a good segment. I know so many people focus on the credit ratings, especially when you're strapped or you're trying to make it a go, and then you've built up a certain amount of credit, and then all of a sudden it feels threatened, and you feel threatened as a result. So we're going to talk about your credit score, and from Blair, learn why it doesn't really matter. So I think this is interesting, Blair, uh, to sort of walk us through the credit score, uh, report basics, explain why you shouldn't let your credit score stop you from dealing with your debt. Such an important, important idea at this point. So let's do this. Focusing on credit ratings and reports, let's start with some of the basic facts so that we can understand this a little bit better if we don't already. Yeah, it, it's definitely an area, Elaine, where there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of misconceptions, and really a lot of mis- misapplied focus, from my point of view, on the consumer. And maybe it's because we don't have a whole lot of indicators that you know really say we're doing well or we're doing not, or doing not so well. So a lot of people really focus. They look at their credit score as a barometer of their overall financial health. You know, if the credit score is high, I must be doing great. If it's low, I must be doing terrible. And it's really not that case at all. We're going to talk today about how a credit score is built up, how you can access it, how you can correct some errors, and why it's really not the metric that you should be focused on. You should be focused on getting out of debt if you're in debt, saving money if you don't have any savings. And if you do those things, your credit score is a secondary consideration, not your primary focus. Now, I know that you've included in the notes that you gave me uh, about credit history and that it is a bit confusing for Canadians because the American system is so different. Is that where we get sort of turned around on it? Yeah, there there can be a piece of that because we get so much of, you know, our, our media and commercials and things. You hear about a FICO score and different things like that. That's just not a thing in Canada. Uh, okay. But what is a thing is a credit report and there is a credit score, not typically called a FICO score, but a credit score. So what a credit report is, is a credit report is a summary of your credit history and includes all of your personal information that's available via public records. So if you've ever used any sort of credit, you're going to have a credit history. So it's going to have information about your debts, when you open the account, what's the balance, do you make the payments on time, when's the last payment that you've missed, have you exceeded your credit limits, are they able to find you, so on and so forth. So for every obligation that you've incurred, or just about every obligation that I'm aware of, uh, it's going to report to either one or both of the credit bureaus in Canada, which are Equifax and TransUnion. So your credit report, it often runs, you know, maybe 10 to 15 pages plus, depending on the amount of history that's on there, Uh, and each of your accounts, item by item, is going to be listed down with all of those factors. 
Okay, uh, so how's the score part work? Yeah, what most people think when they talk about their credit rating is their actual numerical score. And a credit score, it's a number. It ranges from a low of about 300 uh, to a high of about 900. And your credit score is calculated based on all the information that's in your credit report. So you get points for favorable actions, like staying under 50% of your balance, like paying everything on time. And you lose points uh, for unfavorable actions, like making late payments, going over your, your balance or having some legal actions taken against you. Um, now, a credit score, you can pay online, you can try to get an estimate of your credit score, but it's never going to be accurate because just about every lender is going to take the same information and come out with a bit of a different credit score based on their internal processes, their internal systems. So you can get a bit of an estimate, but you know you might say, oh, I'm at 820, and then when you go to the bank and they're showing you at 850 or 750, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your credit report. It just means the way that they're calculating your credit score just could be different within that institution. So to that point, chasing a certain numerical goal in your credit score, usually not worth doing because you're never going to get it bang on to what the, the lender is actually going to be using. So is it important to know what the lender uses for their criteria? I think it's important to know in general terms, but you don't want to make yourself crazy about this. And, okay. you know, most of the time, what's important for good credit is just good financial management. So, you know, pay everything on time with no exceptions. That's number one. Don't miss any payments. Um, you know, an important one is utilization. So, as I just mentioned, if you're paying, you know, if you're charging up to 90% of your available credit limit every month, the lender is going to view you as a lot more risky than someone that charges 30 or 40% and pays it off. So, you know, high balances and late payments, those are two things that are negative going to impact the score, you know, essentially no matter what lender you're dealing with. Okay. So how long do those transactions stay on my credit report? Yeah, what's interesting here, Elaine, is a lot of people are focused on, you know, the negative, and we'll talk about that if you miss payments or if you were to file a bankruptcy or a proposal, uh, but it's actually the case positive information may be kept for longer than negative information on your credit report. So if you've got an active account that's paid as agreed, uh, it's going to remain on your account as long as the account is open and the lender is reporting it. Um, so, you know, that could be, you know, 10 plus years where you're going to see, okay, this person, they've been paying an obligation incurring it uh, and satisfying it every month. Um, if you've got a hard inquiry on your credits, this is when um, you go and now to be clear, you checking your credit report or your credit score, that's never going to reflect negatively against you. But if you're going out, say, shopping for a vehicle or for a loan from a bank, that's called a hard inquiry if a third party is inquiring with the bureau about you. And too many of those are absolutely going to lower your credit score. And those hard inquiries are going to stay on there for three years. So you can imagine if you you're looking at someone's credit score and they've got you know 20 inquiries over the past three years you would view that person as a little bit more risky than someone who's got two inquiries over the past three years the first person clearly is trying to borrow from anybody in town the second person you know maybe they needed a loan they tried to apply for it and they got it or they didn't but it, it's just a different profile Okay. Uh, in terms of negative information on your credit, the maximum amount of time that's going to be held is six to seven years. So if you were to file a bankruptcy from the time the bankruptcy is complete, uh, six years from there is when it drops off your credit report. It doesn't appear there anymore if someone pulls a bureau. Okay. Um, so information can be kept on agency uh, on, on the agency information for six years. What, uh, what else should we be concerned about with that? 
Yeah, so that's you know negative things on your credit. So if you were sued for a debt or you know if you have absconded, you know, essentially the last negative negative contact, it's going to drop off six years from when that occurred. And again, it could be a bankruptcy that's going to drop off six years. Okay. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is if you didn't file for bankruptcy, but you did restructure your debt. So let's say you did a consumer proposal where you paid back you know thirty cents on the dollar with no interest. Um, that's going to clear your credit report the earlier of six years from when you signed that proposal. Um, or three years from when you pay it off. So if it's a very short-term proposal, you pay it off in a year, well then three years after that or four years in total from the day you signed it, that's when that proposal is going to drop off. So even if you restructure your debts, even the most severe method of using a bankruptcy, it's not a life sentence. It's six years from the day it finishes is when it drops off. But also keep in mind, you can rebuild your credit much more quickly than just when something is going to drop off. Now, I know that you're a great believer, just because I've worked with you for a, t- a bit of a t- bit of time now, uh, that it's important for people to check their credit report. I think that's absolutely imperative. And, you know, I think last Valentine's Day, I was on the news saying, you know, that couples should be sharing financial intimacy and they should be checking each other's credit report and showing it before they ever move in together and incur obligations together. So, you know, maybe that's a little bit extreme, but definitely on an individual basis, we should all be checking our credit report at least once or twice a year. You don't need to pay anything to do this. There's two ways that you can do it. Um, you know, one is by mail. And if you go to sans-trustee.com at the bottom of our homepage, there's a client resources link. There's a document you send away there, you get your free copy of your credit report by mail within about a week or two. Uh, If you're in a hurry, you can go online. Uh, Both Equifax and TransUnion during the pandemic, they're offering free access to your credit report online, but this is just a temporary thing. Normally, they're charging $20 to $30, which I wouldn't recommend that you pay. But in the short term, if you really want to get it uh, quickly, you can go to Equifax or TransUnion websites uh, to get a copy of your credit report at no charge. Okay. And again, let's talk about why you think it's so important that people should check their reports. Well, in, in simple terms, because it's often screwed up. <laughs> so every See? time that I pull my credit report, uh, I find addresses I've never lived, uh, uh, obligations I've never had. So you can imagine so many Canadians, so many data points. It's almost a foregone conclusion that there will be an error. And to correct these errors takes time. So the time to correct them is not when you're in the mortgage broker's office trying to get approved for your mortgage. It's not going to happen in that afternoon. But if you've got a couple weeks or a month's notice, you pull your credit, you get something corrected. And then when you need the accurate credit report, it's there for you. I just think that's the most important piece about this whole segment is that even you, somebody like you, who's inscrutable with your finances and and how you manage it, and and that's your life's work as well, but your credit report gets a ton of errors on a regular basis Mm -hmm. just because. Yep. And that's me. So your mileage is probably similar. <laughs> Everyone oh, exactly. should be checking. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's so important. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Make sure you go to their website if you've got more questions, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, give them a call at 1-800-661-30 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.